This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, who are offering Probably Science listeners three full months of unlimited access to all of their lectures for just $30. Visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably Science. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. Hey, we're doing another remote recorded episode. Um, nothing has changed in that regard, yeah. Nothing has changed. We're still messing around with different software options, so hopefully this one will work out. Hopefully the sound last week with Grant was good. Um, I, I'm very excited about this guest, both a, a very, very funny stand-up and also a cast member on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and someone I've wanted on the show for a while. It's Danny Jollis. How's it going, Danny? Oh, my gosh. What an intro. Uh you know, I mean, we're we're getting through this thing. We we sure are. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's wild. It's a wild time. Um, wild time to be alive. But we are gonna just take it day by day. <laughs> yeah. What what part of town are you in, if I can ask? I'm in. Uh, I'm I'm near UCB Franklin, uh, right across from the Celebrity Scientology Center. Is sort of my general area. Okay, so perfect, because obviously you're there anyway, so it's just, you know, shortening your commute, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It's my favorite spot. <laughs> I will tell you, there's no place I, sp- like, and endlessly, I'm like, oh, I wish I had binoculars and could look in. But they keep it so locked down, it's very hard to see what they're up to in there. It's so fascinating. The fact that the word celebrity is in the title of the building, it's just so blatant. You'd think that a, an organization would keep it secret that there was a different place for people they've deemed to be better like i'll tell you what's what, what's what's way crazier is the amount of security they have on the outside like it's like yeah. it's like guards patrol the outside of that building 24 7 if listeners haven't seen this place it's worth a google just google scientology celebrity center because there are a number of big scientology buildings in la but this one is the most ornate and impressive looking and is across the street from also the coolest comedy theater in LA, weirdly. Oh yeah. And it's it's built like a it's built like a mansion and you can't get a sense for how big it is unless you do a full loop of it. Because it's yeah, it's, it's bigger than you think it is. It's big. Uh, so Danny, we, we like to ask our guests this before we get deep into the stories. Um, what what if anything is your background in science? Apart, not Scientology, but the other type of science. (laughs) Sure, fake science, Uh, as I I refer to it. Exactly, exactly. The pretend science that they do in the lab, in the labs and all that. And by the way, that's ranged from like people who had a class that they liked or hated at school or at college or they used to blow stuff up in the woods with your friends. Or you were a working professor for a while before you started doing comedy. We've had everything across the spectrum. Certainly. Well, I'm not uh, the I'm not the latter. I'm the whatever the first one is. Uh, I'm. I, I mean, I I was a good student. Uh, that is, a, like, I was always good at school, at least tried very hard. I will say science was probably my worst subject. Um, so I was pretty bad at it, uh, particularly biology was like a pro. I just, like, couldn't understand it. And uh, so I don't know much. I'm pr- pretty, uh, pr- pretty stupid and very easily... Uh, <laughs> And very much like science is this thing where, because I did a double major in political science. And okay. one thing you learn in political science is like, basically, you can get a study to say anything you want it to. 
Right. Any... Political science feels like one of the softest of the soft sciences. Yes. Well, and it's just very it's very easy to manipulate data. Like you can you can very easily with a changing of the wording of a question get a bunch of stuff. You can make anything happen. And so and I always get frustrated when I see people get caught up in like political stuff where I'm like, oh, that's just a trick. Like they just did a study just to get a reaction because they wanted this to say that. But uh, I that's think that's interesting. Well, can you think of specific studies? Yeah, uh, there, um, there can be studies about like, like not even like on a politics level, like on, even like on a social level, like you'll read stuff where it's like you read studies where it'd be like it turns out. Uh, men don't want a woman who is intelligent. And I'm always like, and it's, it's the studies we read and you're like, no fucking way. No fucking <laughs> way is that true. No way, no way that's, I don't think that's true. And I certainly don't think guys would admit that. And so then what you do is you, you read the study and the way they'll ask the questions, they'll be like, do you find it intimidating if somebody is smarter than you? And somebody will say yes. And they'll be like, and, and would you say that int being intimidated is, like, they'll ask the question in a way where suddenly someone will be like, oh, yeah, I guess it's intimidating. And then they'll be like, therefore, and they'll draw these conclusions. You're like, oh, they just tricked them. You just right. were tricking people. You were asking the question in a way where people didn't realize they were answering. So they kind of go like, is it intimidating when someone's scary, someone smarter than you? Yes. Um, yeah. Is it a bit scary uh, if, if uh, someone is intimidating? Yes. Do you want your girlfriend to scare you? Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, for sure. No, oh, it's no. like. Order of questions is everything. If yeah. you you can get people in a certain mindset and then get to the question you want a a answered, oh, you destroy them. Right. Well, that was that wasn't that push polling which Carl Rove specialized in. Yes. Yeah. You so you can do it anywhere. And so as frustrated as I get with people do with politics, I feel like I'm one of those people with actual science where like I believe everything I read. I don't fully know what's true and what's not about science. And so I I like you. I read studies where it's like. Even with what's going on right now, I've read studies where they were like, it's not a big deal. And I was like, no, you, know, you, yeah. you, you see it. This study says that it's j just like this. And then everybody's like, no, no, it's like that. And you see, so I've, I'm pretty stupid is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's also that with, with something like this that's currently going on, it's such a fast moving and changing and incomplete data. And the data is constantly coming in and changing the pictures and the models and everything. So it's incredibly, it's even easier than it is with most scientific topics to cherry pick things to say what it is you want to say and to produce a, or promote a viewpoint that you want to promote. Yes, exactly. And I am, I am somebody who will get tricked right. with, when it comes to science. I'm not smart enough where there are times where I'm reacting to things and then it turns out to be nothing and I'm like, ah, I'm stupid. To, to be fair though, that, that in itself, even knowing that and accepting that is puts you in the upper percentiles of smartness. Like, smart enough to know that you're dumb. That's I a think, good point, yeah. I think, I mean, if it, it, you could argue when people are like, oh, comics, you have to be smart to do comedy. I was like, hey, I think you just have to be very self-aware. I think that's the thing we're really good at. I'm very self-aware, and I'm very aware of the fact that I am easily manipulated and therefore yeah. have to be careful. Well, well e even, even scientists... Scientists are experts in their field, but often, but not necessarily other fields. And there's a story I'd like to start with. And I know, I know we're, we're switching around between doing episodes where we talk about the situation and the pandemic and everything. And then episodes like this with comedians where we, we keep away from this topic entirely. 
so I hope Does that mean we me have if, to? <laughs> well, I, I hope you'll forgive me if I do this one oh. coronavirus adjacent story that was sent to us by, amongst others, Eric Boisbert. Because <laughs> this is a, a scientist maybe stepping too far into a different field from his comfort zone. <laughs> I think you know the story I'm about to say. Yeah. Well, this definitely went around the world a couple of days ago. Um, astrophysicist gets magnets stuck up his nose while inventing coronavirus device. <laughs> said magnet? Magnets. Yep, magnets. Uh, this is... Uh, well, this st- It was everywhere. This is the Guardian version of the story. Uh, Dr. Daniel Reardon is his name. There's a photo of him looking sullen in hospital. <laughs> Uh, he, he's Australian as well. Uh, fair play. Hey, our Australian listeners, congratulations on one of your country folk. Um, an Australian <laughs> astrophysicist has been admitted to hospital after getting four magnets stuck up his nose in an attempt to invent a device that stops people touching their faces during the coronavirus outbreak. Oh. <laughs> Dr. Daniel Reardon, who's a research fellow at a Melbourne University, was building a necklace that sounds an alarm on facial contact when the mishap occurred on Thursday night. The 27-year-old astrophysicist who studies pulsars and gravitational waves says he was trying to liven up the boredom of self-isolation with the four powerful neodymium magnets. Uh, He told Guardian Australia, I have some electronic equipment, but really no experience or expertise in building circuits or things. I had a part that detects magnetic fields. I thought if I built a circuit that could detect a magnetic field and we wore magnets on our wrists, then it could set off an alarm if you brought it too close to your face. A bit of boredom in isolation made me think of that. <laughs> <laughs> However, the academic realized the electronic part he did, had did the opposite and would only complete the circuit when there was no magnetic field present. I accidentally invented a necklace that buzzes... <laughs> I, I accidentally invented a necklace that buzzes continuously unless you move your hands close to your face. <laughs> So he's already on the wrong footing here. He's already invented possibly the most annoying thing that you could have during this period of self-isolation and uh, and worry. So then he said, after scrapping that idea, I was still a bit bored playing with the magnets. (laughs) It's it's the same as clipping pegs to your ears. I clipped them to my earlobes, then clipped them to my nostrils, and things went downhill pretty quickly when I clipped the magnets to my other nostril. Uh, I still don't quite get if it closed both of his nostrils or if it was just pinching his septum or something. No, I think it was his septum. Oh, well, he placed okay. two magnets inside his nostrils and two on the outside. When he removed the magnets from the outside of the nose, that's that's the problem. So it was... Oh. He, he did have basically two different magnet pairs. I can picture it on the now. outside okay. of his nostrils. Yeah. And then he removed the two magnet pairs and the two inner ones flipped around maybe or maybe we're already facing the right way and slammed into each other and pinched on his septum okay (laughs) uh, (laughs) wait there's more isn't there there is more so then he unfortunately says this guardian article the researcher then attempted to use his remaining magnets to remove them (laughs) yeah my partner who works at a hospital was laughing at me I tried to pull them out, but there's a ridge at the bottom of my nose you can't get past. After struggling (laughs) for 20 minutes, I decided to Google the problem and found an article about an 11-year-old boy who had the same problem. The solution in that was more magnets to put on the outside. (laughs) 
to offset the pull from the ones inside. As I was pulling downwards to try and remove the magnets, they clipped on each other and I lost my grip. And these two magnets ended up in my left nostril while the other one was in my right. <laughs> this is the magnetic version of the woman who swallowed a fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my At god. At this point, I ran out of magnets. Uh, uh, before attending the hospital, he attempted to use pliers to pull them out, but they became magnetized by the magnets inside the nose. Every time I brought the pliers close to my nose, my entire nose would shift towards the pliers, and then the pliers would stick to the magnets. He said, it was a little bit painful at this point. This is the most perfect article I've ever heard. This is amazing. Jesus. Ay, ay, ay. Oh, this uh, poor guy. I know. He said, my partner took me to the hospital she works in because she wanted all of her colleagues to laugh at me. The doctors thought it was quite funny making comments like, this is an injury due to self-isolation and boredom. At this point, a team of two doctors applied an anesthetic spray and manually removed the two magnets from his nose. But how? I still want to know how. I think manually, they ju- I think but... it was just brute force. I think brute force was enough to overcome the pain, and then they just yanked it. Yeah. Um, when they got the three out from the left nostril, the last one fell down my throat. That could have been a problem, he said, if I swallowed or breathed it in, but I was able to lean forward and cough it out. I need to say I'm not going to play with the magnets anymore. Yeah, those little ones, those are dangerous, those little things, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very understandable when you hear this stuff. First off, this guy really uh, breaks it down for you. Step by step, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) It all makes sense in each step, sort of. Very kindly, he really goes through it. Um, Yeah, I mean, but 100%, you're like, I could see how all of a sudden you would just be like, oh, no, there's a problem. And then you, I mean, you just don't want to admit this is happening. I can imagine you would do literally everything you can possibly think of to make this go away before having to alert people. I mean, I can guarantee if I if I had done that, I would first try something with other magnets to try and get it. Oh, out. yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, uh, oh for I'd sure. Hope, I'd hope that I would have the sense to do something like... Um, like, my plan, I think, would be place the magnet inside a handkerchief. So that oh, if it, yeah. Then, if yeah. it then stuck to the other magnet inside the nose you'd still have the end of the, the handkerchief that you could pull on for grip. So the bank... Plus, that's very smart. Plus, it looks like you have this awesome Yosemite Sam mustache, assuming it's a red handkerchief. <laughs> right. as oh, sure. Both your nose. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean, mean... Go ahead. Go, oh, no, I was going to say, the, the, the biggest problem with me reading this article is, like, I have this broken brain where at every step, I'm like, wait, I want to try it. I think I could do it. <laughs> oh, it's a horrible story to read during this period, because I was consistently touching my nose throughout that entire story <laughs> trying to figure out like where it was I was like where is it in the nose and then he, when yeah. he said the ridge at the bottom I was like what ridge and so I was like feeling it then I was like I'm touching my face so much right now yeah and if you have if you've ever played with those magnets as well they are ridiculously strong like I can see how it would happen they're quite scarily powerful there isn't a step in this story that I'm not 100% understanding why he did what he did <laughs> <laughs> And, like, I would have made every decision. And then it's, like, that horrible feeling of, like, you go, all right, you know what? I made a couple bad decisions, but let me do this one, and this will fix this. And then now what happens? You're like, son of a bitch. Okay. One more. We're going to fix it now. Because now we're, oh. And then, you, and then yeah. you just end up in a horrible place. And, uh, I mean, this, this, is a, this, is a, this is a scientist. This is a man who's supposed to be taken seriously. <laughs> this is what ha- idle hands. Yeah, this is the problem. This, with this the is what happens when you try some cross-disciplinary science. <laughs> you try and step outside of the field. Well, I mean, well, this is what happens. I mean, like, if he were to 
tomorrow discover the vaccine. Think about how hard it would be for us to believe him. <laughs> like, this is going to haunt him for life. Um, did, did you ever get anything stuck up your nose as a kid, either of you? Um, I, I remember my friend, my friend Oliver's younger brother got some, put some peas up his nose. And they were... <laughs> I, I clearly remember that day. Uh, Elliot had peas up his nose, and they were debating whether they have to take him to the doctor. And then in the end, I think they managed to just get him to sneeze it out. They just had to, like put pepper up his nose, like do this old school style. Yeah. Anything to get him sneeze. I did, no, I, go ahead. Uh, I did the, the stupid one I did as a kid. I don't know if I've mentioned this on this show before. I might have done, but uh, did I ever did I ever mention on the show what I did with one of those little um, hopper? Toys. What are the hopper toys? The, yeah, what is that? Did you ever have? Did you have that toy that was like it's like a rubber hemisphere and you turn it inside out? Oh yeah. Hopper, uh, you turn it inside out and place it upside down on the table, and then as it unfold, it suddenly pops and pops up in the air. Oh yeah, yeah. I think That's I know this toy. story, but I think it's been long enough that I think we should um, hear it again. It's great. Because because it, it also the other thing you can do with it is it looks like a rubber suction cup. Uh, it, I mean it works like a rubber suction cup, so you can stick it to the back of your hand, your skin. And I, I stuck one to the center of my forehead, but like really forced all of the air out and <laughs> to make the tightest seal I could. Uh, and, then, so, and then tried to pull it away. And I don't know whether it was this, the vacuum that it made or the action of trying to pull it away, but it burst the blood vessels in my forehead in a perfect circle. <laughs> you got a forehead hickey, yeah. Left me with like, yeah, exactly. It's a hickey. That's exactly what it was. It's a hickey, but in the shape of a ring in the middle of my forehead that last for, lasted for about three or four school days. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to claim that I tripped up and hit my head on a door handle. <laughs> it's like, no. Did that work at all? Like, when the not first it, time not you said close. it? Not, not, okay, not for yeah. a second. But there's no way anybody thought that you did it with a suction cup thing either. I mean, how, how could you possibly know how you did that? I think they like it looked. I think that would be the first guess because it looked exactly like the mark from a suction cup. I guess. Like, or, or like, like if you got hit by one of those toy bow and arrow sets that has the yeah, that's what I would think. Something like that. But imagine if you were a kid who had just a little more confidence and you could double down and just come into school that day and start a new religion instead. Woke oh. up this morning with the mark. Who's gonna follow you guys, me? If you want to be cool, you gotta do this. Here's your here's your hopper. Here's your no, 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 no! Don't even say how it ha- just say it. it happened spontaneously. You're chosen. Like you were given a <laughs> you were given a third eye when you woke up. You had this thing. Yeah. <laughs> if you were a little more Joseph Smithy, you could have convinced a lot of people. It's my stigmata. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we, there was a time when whatever age you are, when you discover the concept of hickeys, when everyone would give themselves hickeys on their arms, not even to show up, but just because it's out of sheer boredom in the back of the classroom. Did that happen to you guys? Do you ever suck I, on your own arm? I don't think I did. I don't. Oh, no, okay. I don't, I don't yeah. remember giving myself. I don't know if I ever gave myself a hickey. I will <laughs> right. say that. I All will. Right. You, uh, but I will say that. Uh, and I, this is this is embarrassing and potentially sad for a podcast, but. I will say that when I first started kissing girls, I thought hickeys were like cool. I thought it was like a cool thing to give yeah. someone. Yeah. And at a certain point you realize like, to me, I'm like, as an adult, I'm like, oh, if I see a hickey on someone, I'm like, oh, you're kissing somebody wrong. Somebody's doing it wrong. <laughs> 
somebody is kissing you the wrong way. That's not how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> I would give like hickeys. And like the day I learned how to like really kiss, I was like, oh, yeah. So you're not supposed to do that. That's bad. Nobody likes them. They're not good. You shouldn't be. A hickey is a sign that you're kissing somebody who's bad at it. That's a very good point. In, in all the ways that like we are now so sexually open and like online dating, everyone has like acronyms for all of the things they're into. There's not a single person who's like, who's going to give me a hickey? Like someone's going to give me a hickey. No, there's it's no like hickey, lit- no hickey fetishists. There's nothing. Yeah. Oh, it's the worst. I mean, a hickey, it's like, first off, it's an immediate, just like, it, it's so embarrassing. You're just like, oh yeah, I'm, ugh. you just have, you have, a, you have the mark. Idiot. Yeah. You're, you're the mark of just like, yeah, someone's kissing me. Wrong. Someone's kissing me in the wrong Someone's way. Someone's kissing place. me wrong. Incorrectly. You know how you're supposed to kiss and you're not supposed to have a freaking mark on your neck? <laughs> um, yeah. There, There is some good news or some good science being done in Australia as well. We've got a lot of Australian listeners, so we get science stories from Australia coming in. But this one, Mike Brown sent in this a story about the ancestor of all animals identified in Australian fossils. Oh. <laughs> So a team led by UC Riverside geologists, that's just up the road from us, has discovered the first ancestor on the family tree that contains most familiar animals today, including humans. The tiny, the tiny worm-like creature named Ikaria wariuta is the earliest bilaterian or organism with a front and back, two symmetrical sides and openings at either end connected by gut. The paper is published today in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. This is in phys.org. It's just so funny to, to hear an animal like bragging about an animal's traits. This animal includes both front and back. Like, what, <laughs> yes, it's... what else could a thing have? <laughs> you know one of those front-only animals? Well, like, yeah. I, guess, I guess a distinctive front and back. Like you oh, can oh, say okay. this is the front and this is the back. Oh, okay. Rather than just sense. like this yeah. has a front and then it just carries on forever. Yeah. Like a face? Uh, not just... a face, just a front. <laughs> yeah, well, what's <laughs> yeah. on the front and the back? What makes them different? I think there's just an arrow pointing which direction it is. All right. Which <laughs> direction no, I think food, it's just, food goes. I guess the food food gets absorbed from one end and goes out the other. Maybe because it, it's like a face by gut. Yeah, so I guess you call it yeah. a face, even if it doesn't have distinctive facial features. All right. So there's a face, and this is so this is pre. This is pre fish. Uh, oh, way, way, way pre-fish. So this is the so the earlier it says the earliest multicellular organisms such as sponges and algal mats had variable shapes, uh, mm-hmm. collectively known as the uh, Ediacaran biota. The group contains the oldest fossils of complex multicellular organisms. However, most of these are not directly related to animals around today, including lily pad-shaped creatures known as Dickinsonia that lack basic features of most animals, such as a mouth or a gut. Mm. The development of bilateral symmetry was a critical step in the evolution of animal life, giving organisms the ability to move purposefully and a common yet successful way to organize their body. We should all be so lucky. Yeah, right? I don't think I've moved purposefully in the last (laughs) month, nor have I successfully organized my body in any way, shape or form. Sure. Actually, that's not true. I did a fair bit of organizing my body. But (laughs) I I think we're all doing more organizing our body than normal. But... Uh, I have no clue what you're saying. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> I have no clue what that means. I don't know if that could mean literally anything. Yeah, it's like I that was think exactly what it was. Is it? It's a masturbation. Just a basic joke? jerking off joke. Oh, got it. 
but um, <laughs> a multitude of animals from worms to insects to dinosaurs to humans are organized around this same basic bilateral body plan. Evolutionary biologists studying the genetics of modern animals predicted the oldest ancestor of all bilaterans would have been simple and small with rudimentary sensory organs. Preserving and identifying the fossilized remains of such an animal was thought to be difficult, if not impossible. For 15 years, scientists agreed that fossilized burrows found in 555 million-year-old Idicaran period deposits in Nilpena, South Australia, were made by Bellatarians, but there was no sign of the creature that made the burrows, leaving the scientists with nothing but circulations. But uh, Scott Evans, who's a doctoral graduate at UC Riverside, and Mary Drosser, who's a professor of geology, noticed minuscule oval impressions near some of the burrows. With funding from a NASA exobiology grant, I didn't know that's something NASA did, looked at Hmm. tiny things, they used a three-dimensional laser scanner that revealed the regular, consistent shape of a cylindrical body with a distinct head and tail and faintly grooved musculature. The animal ranged between two to seven millimeters long and about one to two and a half millimeters wide, with the largest the size and shape of a grain of rice. This is just the right size to have made the burrows. We thought the animal should have existed during the interval, says Evans, but we always understood they would be difficult to recognize. Once we had the 3D scans, we knew we'd made an important discovery. Uh, so yeah, I guess this is like thought to be potentially the ancestor of all human life. So any any worms, fish, us, birds, everything. I can see the similarity. Yeah, I can see myself from, from this, this thing. Yeah. All right. I'm having such a hard time picturing that. And what this means. Like when you said <laughs> everything you just said, I, like the entire, if you could have seen me, my head was just like in my hands <laughs> and I was just trying to picture what all of that meant. And also when they were like, this is like a huge discovery. And I'm like, but we already knew it was something like this. So all we did was just confirm it. We didn't yeah, even. Well, they, fa- they found the burrow paths. I think that they, uh, so they're like, I think this thing must have lived here. But they hadn't discovered it, and using these tiny, these really high-resolution, high-tech scanning lasers, they managed to actually identify where the creature is and what it looks like. The fossil of it, anyway. All right. So it'd be a tiny speck in some sedimentary rocks. Well, tell Scott I'm proud of him, and. And, uh, you know, that uh, I guess this helps us, but... Uh, you got to know your roots, right? It's important to know where you came from. Certainly. Very important to know where you came from. I would say that I, I'd like Scott's mind to be focused on something else now. <laughs> I feel like there's more pressing scientific issues in this world than this little guy, but I'm glad he figured it out. But, but I, I truly can't picture any part of this. It's so hard for me to understand. Flip side, if Scott chooses to change direction and focus on a different field of science, he might end up with his septum stuck together with That's true. powerful mag- magnets. That's so there's an argument to be made to stay in your lane even during this time. There is a, There has been a clear argument and precedent set on this podcast of stay in your lane, and I, <laughs> and I do think that is you are correct. But, my God. Um, well, there's, there's another story linked to on this website that I just, in the sidebar of the stories that I quite like the look of. I don't know if you can see it, Andy, as well, on your side, but the face of a mouse reveals its emotions, according to this study. I think Cute. this is a more understandable hmm. story. I love this story. Yeah. Right? 
Researchers at the Max Planck Institute of Neurobiology are the first to describe emotional facial expressions for mice. Similar to humans, mouse facial expressions change when it tastes something sweet or bitter or when it becomes anxious. With this new possibility of measuring the emotions of mice, neurobiologists can investigate the basic mechanisms of how emotions are generated and processed in the brain. Pleasure, disgust, fear, the facial expressions that reflect... We didn't know this? It does seem sort of intuitive, right? Yeah, like, if you scare a mouse, its its eyes get big. That's always been a thing. I don't think I've ever scared a mouse close up enough to be able to tell. Well, Matt, you've got got time now. Did you have any friends with rats or mice growing up as a I, kid? I was that friend. I had I had pet mice, but I think I just don't I don't ever remember staring into their face and doing anything sufficiently scary. You don't remember because were you able to pet your 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 mice? Not very well. No, they were they would shriek and run away. But again, I was like <laughs> they were too quick and squirmy. Okay, to... but when they would shriek and run away, their face would look shrieky. <laughs> I claim that this is a bullshit find. <laughs> This is, we've always known this. This is a scientist trying to stretch something. We've all, yeah, mice make, I knew mice make some facial emotions. Okay. So have you ever, have you ever, have you ever pet like the top of a mouse's head to like close its eyes kind of and like enjoyment? So are we projecting that enjoyment onto it though? Do we know for certain that's enjoyment? I guess we didn't. (laughs) So here's what, here's what I think this story has done. Firstly, it does say here, uh, the, that some scientists, we believe we can recognize feelings and the facial expressions of our pets, but in other animals, they can appear expressionless to us, according to this article, although not to you. Uh, Danny disagrees. And I, but it, here, here's, what I, here's what I will say. This article does say, and I, I don't think you could necessarily do this if you were to look at a video out of context with no sound of the mouse. Uh, using machine vision, the researchers were able to reliably link five emotional states to the facial expressions of mice. Those states are pleasure, disgust, nausea, pain, and fear, which were clearly distinguishable. And they could even measure the relative strengths of these emotions. So I don't think, I don't think I could distinguish between a a mouse that is expressing pain or fear or disgust. I don't think I could go like, oh, that's a disgusted mouse and that is a fearful mouse. Do they have... Do they have in the article photos of what these different mouth, mouse faces look like? They have drawings, <laughs> which, to be honest, in this picture, the drawings do look remarkably similar to each other. <laughs> they just can you text really me about... these drawings? Yeah, I'll, I'll send you. I want to see them. I, I want to look at them right now. I, I I call bullshit on this study, <laughs> I, and I and let it be clear, I know truly nothing, and I'm an idiot. But I think let's see, let's see. Danny, I believe I just, that link I just sent in the. Yeah, yeah. So Let's that see. Work? If you scroll Pleasure. down to the drawings of the whiskers moving based on emotion. Pleasure. This it looks like the whiskers go back when you're when they're feeling pleasure, and they go forward when they're feeling pain. Yeah. we'll I put a link to this in the show notes as well. So I mean, they, yeah, this looks. I mean, it's it's a lot about the ears also. Oh, the you ears, the, right? Yeah, yeah. The ears are moving a great deal. But we all knew that. We always knew that ears... Ears are, pricking up means alertness or, or probably fear, right? Yeah. We've always known this. Yeah, look at that. And look, oh, I mean, oh, look at this last this last one. Yeah, with the joy and it's got the little... Th- oh, it shows the arrows. It shows where things go. But you right. see joy on here? Where's joy? 
if you go to the third uh, of the, the, if you click underneath, it's the third one, and it's got arrows of where things are going. Oh, is it like convulsing? Yeah, that's interesting. So it, it says here in this article, the main benefit of the discovery of mouse facial expressions is that it's now possible to identify mechanisms giving rise to emotions. This was previously a problem. Without a reliable measurement of emotions, it's been difficult to study their origins in the brain. We humans, this is says Nick Dolsnek, who's the study's lead author, we humans may notice a subtle facial change in the mice, but we can only recognize the emotion behind it with a great deal of experience and can hardly ever determine its intensity. With our automated facial recognition system, we can now measure the intensity and nature of an emotion on a time scale of milliseconds and compare it to the neuronal activity in relevant brain areas. One such brain area is the insular cortex, which is associated with emotional behavior and the perception of emotions in animals and humans. So, so I guess they can, they can use this to, in various ways, simultaneously study which neurons are firing in the brain at the same time as you're looking at the mouse's face and detecting whether it is tasting something unpleasant or pleasant and scared or not scared. So if I can get one of these machines, does it mean I can, in, in an appreciable way, improve my relationship with my mouse? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think you can really make some breakthroughs. Okay, that's, that's good, because I feel like he's been distant recently. I'll tell you this. I don't think you need this stupid machine. I think you can tell how your mouse feels off basic instinct. Okay, <laughs> basic mouse instinct. Yeah, the mice always made it clear. I mean... I don't know. Matt, when you had mice, couldn't you tell when the mice mouse like sometimes would be affectionate, sometimes with it? It was like you could tell. I don't think I don't think I was a good mouse owner. I'm gonna be honest with you, Danny. I don't think I did enough petting or playing with this mouse to be able to I remember my really friend identify a range of emotions. Well, my friend Lillian had a pet rat or mouse, I'm trying to remember which for forever. And that but that thing was like trained. It was like very they were they were buddies. And then my friend as a kid, I know I had a chinchilla and I think a bunch had mice. I I always felt like they had like, you know, personalities. Yeah. Did you so you didn't have pets yourself, Danny, or what did you have? We had we you know, we we had a little Noah's Ark going. We always had like two of everything. So we had like two dogs, two cats, two birds. Uh we had a tortoise. Uh, that lived for like forever. Uh, we had a tortoise. Uh, what else do we have? We had a... Ooh, would that yeah. just roam around the backyard or was that an indoor tortoise or how did that work? Uh, so it was, so my dad, I mean, this is back in the day before nine eleven. but he was in, uh, I grew up in Virginia and he, he went to California for something and somebody was like, oh, do you want this like baby tortoise? And so he literally said like he slipped it in his pocket and took it on a plane and brought it back to us. <laughs> and then this tortoise grew to be like massive, huge tortoise. Go through like a head of lettuce a day, maybe two. Wow. Um, huge tortoise. And so um, during the winter, it hibernates. So during the winter, we would bring it inside and it would live in its little thing and like kind of come out, but for the most part, just like sleep in its little area. But then during the spring and summer, my dad built like a little pen for it, and it would uh, it, it would roam around in its little pen outside. I'm curious, the person who gave this to your dad was he an old Asian gentleman in a in a curio shop? <laughs> and did it come with any stipulations about how to treat I'll be it, honest, what not to do? 
I'll be honest. It's one of these stories where, like, you know, as a kid, your dad, like, shows up and he's like, he's like, I snuck this tortoise on a plane. Now we have a tortoise. And you're like, all right. And it's like the older you get, the more you're like, what, what, what happened? Yeah, what? What? Why do we have this tortoise? Yeah. What bar bet or poker game happened right. where yeah. your dad ended up with a tortoise? But we loved the tortoise. The tortoise was great and it was very sweet and it, you could pet it. It would let you, uh, it would let you, it, it like knew you and it would like let you pet under its chin. It would like Aww. stick its head out. You could pet under its chin. And they don't ever bite, right? They're not snapping in any way. They're not like, they don't get agitated or biting. No, I, I mean, it'll do its little uh, tortoise hiding thing right. and it bites. I mean, it eats uh, lettuce and when it eats lettuce, it like really, you know, snaps down. But it, it was very sweet towards us. I mean, we were its owners. It, lo- it loved us. Our, our neighbors, our next door neighbors, when I was a kid, had a pet tortoise that would escape with alarming regularity. Like, well, I didn't want to. It's so famously slow moving. The number of times we get a ring on the doorbell and go like, is he in the garden? Right. Is he in your garden? now?" Well, I, I, I'll tell you, I didn't want to mention this part of the story, but uh, uh, Maggie, the tortoise ran away. Oh, Maggie. <laughs> uh, we never found her. She got out of the pen once and we could, we could, we like searched the wood. We had like acres of woods behind my house and we like searched the woods. We couldn't find her. She was gone. Wow. Yeah, we I never mean, tortoises live for a long time. Maggie could still be out there very happily roaming the woods of Virginia. She for sure isn't. She had no survival instincts. <laughs> you don't think the hibernation works in the wild? In, of the uh, wilds of I think she's probably very, very dead. We were, we were really hoping because I think we were going to donate her to a zoo at some point because she was getting so big. We were like, hey, we can't take care of this thing. Yeah, it's really like, if you buy something that has a longer lifespan than you, you're you're just burdening your descendants at a certain point. You know, like, <laughs> oh, how yeah. Do you decide... Have you watched? Oh, yeah. Have we all seen Tiger King at this point? By the way, we have. I, I've, I'm only halfway through it right now. I've I'm watched. Currently... I've watched all of it. I'm watching it on Netflix Party, which, if you haven't tried that yet, is a reasonably decent uh, plugin, uh, browser plugin that lets you coordinate watching things on Netflix with friends. Uh, so I'm currently watching it with, amongst others, friends of the show Sarah Morgan and Nick Duty. Oh, oh that's... cool. Hey, hey, Andy. You been uh, learning anything, doing any kind of watching of informative materials that you might have access to through special offers if you were a podcast listener of ours? Very funny you should mention that. Yes, I I think uh, the first two weeks of this quarantine were kind of a wash for me as far as getting anything productive done. But then I decided, well, let's dig into some topics that I've been interested in. And of course, our lovely sponsor, The Great Courses Plus, is a great place to do that. So I just started searching for anything that seemed... Um, you've gone very academic with the course you've well, been learning, haven't you? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. It's a little high-minded. Uh, we, we, for, for we've the... talked before about on this show about the, the Great Courses Plus is taught by a, a huge number of university-level lecturers who are chosen for their expertise in clarity of lecturing as well as knowledge of the subject. And it has a wide range of topics through the arts the humanities we've mostly been talking about science lectures that we've been covering that we've been looking at and enjoying through the great courses plus and our partnership with them uh you've gone for more of a science adjacent course this this yes maybe one that's appropriate to our current predicament oh it's so good i'm four episodes deep into the everyday guide to beer taught by charles w (laughs) bamworth who's a professor at uc davis and uh it's all that you want out of a lecture series about beer for one thing i never really knew how the brewing process worked and now i understand that pretty well um 
And for another thing, it's got tons of just beautiful, crisp, 4K <laughs> hero shots of freshly poured draft beers, especially episode three and four, where they're talking about different types of beer. And uh, for someone who hasn't been in a bar for about a month now, it's just uh, it's the closest that you can get while sitting at home. So I, I'm, I'm half enjoying it because I'm learning about beer and half enjoying it because it's it's beer porn. You know, it's, yeah, like, it's I was, almost like you I was about to say, I, I, I'm normally... I'm generally not a fan of the construction uh, noun and then the word porn just to represent sure, a vaguely pleasant. Yes. No, no, I, but I was, I was going to say is like generally I, I hate that. Like, oh, this is food porn. This is clope, whatever. But like that right now, that's literally what this is for you. This is. Yeah. Yeah. This is a way of enjoying vicariously something that you're not able to get right now. I really didn't realize how much I missed bars until this last episode I'm watching, episode four. Um, you see some wide shots of the lecturer right. in in a tap room, and you're like, "Oh, that's that's a place I used to go. We used yeah. to be able to go and to you're these also, places." You're also getting ideas of how you might want to spice up your bar going when you finally yeah. get to do it again. Yeah, and, and we also get to see in episode two. You take a tour of the Sierra Nevada brewery and talk with the brew ma- brewmaster of Sierra about their process. So there's there's lots of great science and history of beer and information right, about different this, types. It's worth pointing out the lecturer of this course, Charles Banworth, is a he, he is a professor emeritus at UC Davis, but and also a, a biochemist. Yes, he's also yeah. a senior quality advisor to Sierra Nevada. Uh, and works in the brewing industry. Yeah, um, as I said, very, very informative and very beautifully shot. As are all of the great courses plus series uh, of lectures. You can find topics ranging, as we said, from sciences to the arts, anything else. And um, I've been watching them on TV and even on like a larger screen. It, it looks great, and you can also watch it on your phone or listen on the go. You could basically consume these any way that you want, sort of in a podcasty way or a video way. So, so yeah, do that. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. And you will get your first three months for just $30. That's just $10 a month for the first quarter that you are a member. I'm doing a, a – the. did you ever do Brouhaha? Yeah, yeah. The comedy uh, show. Yeah, yeah. The bread oh, yeah. so and others put on. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. They're right. they're uh, they're gearing up for. They're going to do so, uh, uh, some stuff with Netflix uh, party, and so I just I was literally on it right before this. Oh, that's oh, cool. So the first I've time done, experimenting. I've done a it. couple of online gigs now, one of which was ruined by Zoom bombing trolls, which is a thing that we now have to be aware of. Wait, what happened? I go. Oh I've done a bunch of online gigs, and they've all been pretty rough. But what? <laughs> It was it was really fun until it got. It was one that was organized by uh, Kate Willett. Oh, I heard about this. Wait, so what actually happened? So I was the comic who was. Am I ruining on... your podcast by making you talk about this? Is this not what no, people no, want? No, not at all. I'm uh, interested also. I haven't heard this story. But, uh, so. <laughs> I was the one on stage, if you can call it on stage. I was the first person up after Kate's opening set. It was really nice because she has you know a nice following of good people. Incredibly and, um, sweet. Incredibly sweet following. Right, so it was all, you know, it was, all, it was a lovely, like, Zoom thing, um, but because, you know, it's all new and we don't know what to do and how to avoid these things, now we have better ideas of how to lock stuff down. Someone came on towards the end of my set, I was nine minutes into a ten-minute set, um, and then started, like, shouting stuff out and making a noise, and then took over screen sharing because it hadn't been disabled for non-admins, and started scrolling 
like racial slurs on the screen so kate had to be oh, like all right no. show's over done 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 and just <sighs> shut the whole thing down uh but yeah i think that might me i might have the distinction of being the first zoom bombed comedian um, if you if you haven't heard about this by the way this is a a thing that's been happening to a bunch of different events it's been uh you know, various online concerts meetings uh university lectures and classes some AA meetings uh, have been attacked by trolls, which is particularly shitty because these are sometimes people who... How did they get the link? So the problem is Zoom is quite insecure. And also, um, if if you were organizing the gig like Kate was, which, which was sort of an open gig so anyone could drop in, and also she, you don't, she didn't have the other participants muted because she wants... She wanted to hear laughter, as did I. As the, I appreciated the fact that you could hear laughter. You weren't just performing to an sure. empty screen or to the three other comics. Um, so she sort of had too many of the permissions open. Again, like no fault of her own. This is really new and uncharted territory and everything. Everyone's oh, sure. trying to work out how to do this stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, there's stuff you could do to avoid it. You could have stuff that's passworded off and you have to get a ticket and then you get the you get the room code whereas see this was more open she just posted it like hey i'm doing a gig at 8 p.m log on to this uh here's the address wow and uh some like teenage 4chan dickhead decided to get on it uh it did it is open for it i mean i've done a bunch of these zoom gigs and they're tough man they are I, I was I was actually until this thing happened I was genuinely enjoying this and also partly because I'd gone two weeks without doing a gig of any sort and it turns out I'm an addict. Oh, I, I, I was, we're all losing our fucking minds over this. I mean, yeah, like I was e- like every I was comic being really frustrated and sort of crabby and like I was like, why am I like I know we're you know stuck in sort of semi quarantine and we're locked in and everything and that's making everyone a bit frustrated, but. Like I'm much crabbier and more annoyed than I would be. What's going on? And they're like, oh, I haven't done comedy in yeah two weeks. I, I never weeks realized maybe. how much of an emotional crutch it is for me. Yeah, but it's like that's how I express myself, and now I can't. It's it's an emotional crutch, and it's it's you're addicted to the 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 adrenaline and the spike and the you know the yeah. sort of the um whatever sort of dopamines endorphins or whatever you get from performing like that's yeah and it's all and it's all gone i mean yeah so i've been doing a lot of zoom shows and stuff and i i i to get that rush the 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 thing about zoom is because at first i was like the mics on thing works you can hear laughs but i've changed my tone i i think it's not worth it there's just too much noise well you have to be careful about you know things like um making sure people know to mute their microphones if they are but nobody knows i mean the problem is it's like impossible i mean it's just impossible to monitor so it's like it's it's very hard i but i you know i'm gonna keep doing them and keep trying them and uh, keep we got nothing else to do uh yeah i keep an eye on my twitter because i'm i'm tweeting out when i'm doing the shows and retweeting them and that kind of thing so if you're and i'm doing them in different time zones i'm doing a gig for a comedy club based in manchester called excess malarkey that's a club that i haven't played in years because i'm living in america now but it's i love those guys and i'm doing their show on tuesday so it'll be like lunchtime for me which is kind of that's kind of nice that i get to do a gig in the uk i did a zerk show this morning 
What's that? Sorry. I did a show for Zurich, I believe, is where they're based. Wow. Oh, I mean that. I mean that's something. You know, you 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 couldn't normally easily do a gig in Europe. Yeah, no, and it it, it was fine. You know, it's it, it, it's tough because on one hand you're like I'm doing something and it feels exciting, but then you're also like. But this is a bad version of what I mean. This is not good. <laughs> this is, I mean, if I debatably, I'm just ranting at a camera. Yeah, to, it's uh, definitely to... not the same as like playing Largo. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit of drop, but we're trying. To, yeah, to to quote a high school teacher of mine who had these great sort of Yogi Berra isms, or it, it's it's a kiss to wet toilet paper. He would always say about things <laughs> like that. Yes. <laughs> But what's the actual experience when you're doing it? You're not getting laughs as immediate feedback, so you're just seeing faces smiling? Or how does it even approach there being a feedback loop like there is in stand-up? So there's basically two ways to do it with Zoom right now. There's one, which is you have everybody's mics on, and you're like, only, you know, just laugh. That's it. Don't talk. Just laugh. And so the the upside of that is you do get the laughs. The downside is people are making noise and they have feedback and they oh. have the sound on their computer up so you hear yourself and it's just like oh. right yeah it, you've got to tell people to have headphones in or it's just brutal there's a it's, lot it's definitely tricky and also i don't think zoom i could be wrong about this but i don't think zoom currently has the ability to have the equivalent of a microphone where you it, like in a comedy show the audience is audible in a real comedy show. The audience is audible, and so is the comedian. But the comedian is like five times louder than any individual com- audience member because you're speaking through a microphone and PA system. That's kind of what you want for a Zoom gig. You would ideally have the audience mics unmuted, but every audience member drop down to yeah. 25% no, it, of your volume. Instead, so when they laugh, it, their laughter. yeah. Instead, when they laugh, it pulls like literally away from it. It like treats it like, oh, they're talking now. Right. Well, that, so, that's another thing. In Zoom, you can. There are ways to make the performing comedian be the main pinned video. There, like, there are things you can do, but I think it's still imperfect because Zoom wasn't designed yeah. for this. So the other way to, to do out. it, yeah. And so the other way to do it is you mute everyone. You go, just laugh, you want to laugh. And then you're just ranting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you just kind of, and it like, that's weird. Yeah. That's been what I've been, been enjoying the most because it kind of is <laughs> like stand up without, you're just like, okay, I'm going to now talk. Like, I've always been rant. That's always how I've done stand up anyways, I rant. So I'm like, I, I'm just going to rant. And like, I'm kind of. That is keep... also what we're doing right now. There's yeah. the three of us are speaking to. That's a good point. Like, thousands of audience members, but. Exactly. So zero idea of their feedback. They like they might currently be. Everyone might be like, "Get back to the stories." We've heard about you trying to do a Zoom gig now for ten minutes, or they might want to know more about it. I've got no idea until emails come through three days later. Well, I'll tell you what I do a lot, which is when I, I did the thing I did in Zurich today was the first time I was like, "Oh, I think I might have online stand up down." And the biggest thing I'm doing is I monitor. uh, I watch the chats, so I'm like, I'm like, I don't need to see you laughing, but I do want to see your chatting. So it's like, okay. if they have something to say, say it. Or if they like something, like it. And then, like, I'll respond to that almost like a back and forth. And that oh, I found very fun. That's that way better. Because yeah. mm-hmm. the one for XS Malaki, I, I believe that we use, a, we use a Zoom or some private Zoom or some other chat thing to actually connect to, to get me. But then the actual gig gets streamed on Twitch. 
So people watching the XS Malarkey gig aren't on Zoom at all. They're using Twitch. And then uh, you don't hear their laughter, but you will see comments down the side. Yeah, yeah. So I recommend in. keeping the Twitch on the side and watching their comments because then it keeps it keeps them engaged. It feels like they're, you know, a part of the show a little bit, which is something. That's what I that's where I'm at on online stand up gavity. Yeah, that's good to know. <laughs> um, I've got a story here, by the way, that I found this is a story I found in New Scientist that sort of connected a bit to the mouse story, except this is people brains and recognizing things. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Um, Hunt for George Clooney's face explains how stress affects decisions. <laughs> There's a... Uh, you mean George Clooney's, way, George Clooney's front we're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, I didn't check as yesterday was April the 1st. I should have double-checked to make sure every one of these stories we're covering isn't some fucking dumb fuck April Fool's thing. <laughs> uh, I don't think any of the stories have been... I, well, the, the the Magnet Nose one story was came in a few days before April 1st, so yeah. that's definitely not a risk. But there is a... I was like, fucking, is mouse facial expressions? That's not me falling for... Nope, that's another April 2nd story. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Stress can lead to poor decision-making, and people hunting for George Clooney's face could help us understand why. Uh, Thackeray Brown at Stanford and his colleagues asked 38 people with an average age of 23, in other words, asked a bunch of grad students. Yeah, this is a terrible study already. Go on. (laughs) to, To navigate looping paths around 12 different virtual towns in a simulated environment. Each town had just a few streets and took about a minute to navigate. The researchers also placed the face of a celebrity, George Clooney, for example, at a point along the route. The team then asked the participants to navigate the simulation again while lying inside a functional magnetic resonance uh, imaging machine, an fMRI. We talked about those a while ago in the episode with Ori Amir and how they work. Um, This time... Participants began in an unfamiliar location in the virtual town and had to navigate the streets to find the celebrity's face as fast as possible. So you had to basically re-find the celebrity in the maze. In order to test the effects of stress, 20 of the participants also wore a device on their ankle that gave them mild electric shocks at random (laughs) intervals. Sure. The, The team also measured the level of cortisol, which is a stress hormone, in all 38 people. Before navigating the town, they were each given a few seconds to plan their route. Each town was designed so that a previously unused shortcut was the most effective way to reach the celebrity. The towns were small enough that people should have been able to work this out, but those wearing the ankle device took the shortcut less often, 31% of the time versus 47% of the time uh, for those without it. They were also more stressed with elevated cortisol levels, understandably, because they were being electric shocked and they were 20 yeah. percent slower to reach the celebrity and they knew that the but, shocks were coming randomly they didn't think that the shocks were penalizing them for bad choices or anything i i don't know I exactly i think I'm it, says, sure. it says random so hopefully they knew it was yeah. random also I'll, I, I, this this sounds more like prisoner's dilemma to me than it does <laughs> to stress because i think a lot of it would be like you wouldn't take the shortcut because you would be like i just want to make sure i get there and i don't want to get stuck because i'm going to get shocked more Oh, because oh, the more time you spend. In this is why I was good shot. at poli sci. I was so good at tearing down studies. This is what I do well. I know how to tear <laughs> apart a study. The the thing you're, the thing you're not factoring in is with, with prisoners' dilemma. It's basically like people will take a medium penalty 
than take the risk of getting like the best possible solution you guys know right dilemma. You just, guys just are as, a, as a recap the prisoner's dilemma is this sort of thought experiment where you are you're in prison and another person is also in prison and then you are presented with a choice between uh asking for the shorter sentence but the deal is if you both ask for the shorter sentence you both get a worse sentence but if one of you asks for the shorter sentence and the other one doesn't then you get a shorter sentence. Uh, and then if you both don't take it, you get a medium amount of uh, punishment. Well, so the, so the well, idea is you, you, you basically win if you, you well, win if you, if, you want, if you choose it, but the other person doesn't, but you lose really badly if you both choose it. Well, no, I don't th- my understanding of Prisoner's Dilemma, feel free to correct me, is basically it's do you rat out your partner or do you not rat out your partner? Right. Those are your two choices. Right. Confess. You either, lie. Right. You, either, you either can choose not to rat out your partner and then as long as he doesn't rat you out, you both get away with it. Yeah, sorry. Or, I should have, I should have uh, made it clear as like <laughs> confessing or not confessing or ratting out is the easiest way to go. Like, yeah, yeah. And so even though if you both just don't rat each other out, you both get away most people will rat the other person out because they'll be like, I'd rather just know I'm going to take some kind of a sentence than I don't rat him right. out, he rats me out, and then I go to jail for a really long time. Even uh, though if you both didn't rat each other out, you well, wouldn't hang go on, no, if you, if you both If you both stay silent, then you both do get some punishment, but you don't. Yeah, but, but, you, but not, not as severe. Yeah. yeah, so the idea is you would get, say, one year if you if you both stay silent but yes. if you choose to if you choose to stay silent and then the other guy rats you out he goes free and you get a really bad sentence right um but if you both uh, rat each other out if you both right. rat each other out you get like two years or whatever right. yes exactly and so everybody goes two years is the choice so this strikes me as i'm gonna get shocked no right probably a lot so rather than me take what what looks like potentially a shortcut, but also potentially going to make me be stuck, like what if I'm wrong, then I'm stuck, then I'm getting shocked three or four times. Why don't I just take the route that I know works? I'll get two shocks, but at least I'm not going to get four. I, I would say the argument against that, and I, I get what you're saying, but it, it does it does say a mild electric shock, which does suggest to me that this is this is discomfort, but it's Off, not Off-putting, sort of, but not... Yeah, even though this experiment did happen at Stanford, where <laughs> they do have a certain reputation for experiments that might be unethical. Yeah. But, um, it must have hurt a little, though, because people's stress levels were up. Right. You know, but that'd be the same as, like, it, the equivalent would be maybe having a rubber band on your ankle that they're flicking, except... Uh, yeah, I wouldn't like that. You wouldn't like it, but you wouldn't be like, oh, shit, I need to find... I a way to stop to this. Get, I need to make this stop as quickly as possible. Sure. It's more like, ah, this is weird mm-hmm. um so they they also they used a machine learning algorithm to decode the fmri data of each participant training it to identify when a person was looking at a particular phase or landmark in the virtual town they then used the ai to try to work out what the participants were thinking about when planning their route non-stressed participants were more likely to imagine all of the landmarks present along the route that they went on to take while stressed participants appeared to focus on just the landmarks closest to their starting point this links hmm. to how stress affects us in the real world, says Brown. When something is really stressing us out, we stop making plans and just worry about the thing in front of us, he says. 
looking at the neural mechanisms of stress on memory may contribute to how we prepare for stressful events or how we deal with conditions like PTSD, says Neil Burgess at University College London. So, yeah, I guess, I guess it's like you develop more tunnel vision in this sort of more stressful situation. You, right. you dial and you're like, okay, I'm going to just stick with what I know because I don't have the mental capacity to deal with the stress and also try and innovate and try and come up with anything cleverer. Yeah, exactly. That would be my argument against that. What this, this, I mean, what it's concluding is you could argue obvious. (laughs) (laughs) You could argue the analysis of stress makes you uh, not do things as well is like, sure. I don't think they're wrong. I think that that is correct. But I would throw in there when it comes to hunting for George Clooney's face, if you're getting <laughs> shocked on the leg in the middle of it, I think that, yeah, is going to affect the way you do it. And I don't necessarily think it's because you're afraid of shortcuts. It might also affect how you, in future, perceive George Clooney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. Why are you wincing through the Oscars telecast? Yeah, yeah. Poor George Clooney now has a bunch of people who see his face and are like, eh. Yeah. Why do you want to go to see? It's meant to be a really good film. Like, yeah, but yeah, I just, yeah. ah, I just kind of. Yeah. You ever see his face, and you're like, wait, what was, what's the nearest landmark? You guys don't, <laughs> you guys don't get that. You guys don't get that feeling. You don't instantly search for alleyways. <laughs> yeah. To cut through. Apparently, I was wrong. I was supposed to be going through alleyways. You guys don't think <laughs> that. What you guys are missing with this experiment is, to me, it really seems like a Manchurian candidate plan, like a way to train people to go assassinate George Clooney. Like, whatever town he's <laughs> yeah. in, it doesn't matter if you've never seen these streets before, you will find Clooney no matter what's happening around the, you. The second you re-shock their ankle, they get activated. Yeah. <laughs> Sleeper cells of Clooney assassins all over the world now. <laughs> uh, but what, one last thing, one last story on, uh, on the subject of murdering and killing things. Sure. Uh, this sure. is from Paul Steenbeck sent in. Unless you have another story you'd like to cover, Andy. Oh, no, go for it. This is um, Neanderthals, it turns out, had a taste for sharks and dolphins. Oh. They were eating fish, mussels, and seals at a site in present-day Portugal, according to a new study. The research adds to mounting evidence that our evolutionary relatives may have relied on the sea for food just as much as ancient modern humans. For decades, the ability to gather food from the sea and from rivers was seen as something unique to our species. Scientists found evidence for an intensive reliance on seafood at at a Neanderthal site in southern Portugal. That's Neanderthals living between 106,000 and 86,000 years ago at the cave of Figueira Brava near Setebel. They were eating mussels, crabs, fish, including sharks, eels, and sea bream, and also seabirds, dolphins, and seals. The research team led by Yao Gilo from the University of Barcelona, found that marine food made up about 50% of the diet of the Figuera Brava Neanderthals. The other half came from terrestrial animals like deer, goats, horses, uh, and ancient world cattle known as Arak. Where in the world were And also tortoises. They ate tortoises as well. I'm sorry. No! No! Wait, (laughs) but where in the world were these uh, Neanderthals? Uh, What is now present-day Portugal. Got it. Thank you. Uh, so some of the earliest known evidence for the exploitation of marine resources by modern humans, homo sapiens, dates back to around 160,000 years ago in Southern Africa. Mm. Few researchers previously proposed a theory that the brain-boosting fatty acids in seafood contributed to enhanced cognitive development in early modern humans. 
Oh. So, all right. The the this, the theory goes, could help account for a period of marked invention and creativity that started amongst modern human populations in Africa around 200,000 years ago. It may also have assisted modern humans to outcompete other human groups like the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. But the researchers found that the Neanderthal inhabitants of this area, Figueroa Brava, relied on the sea on a scale comparable to modern human groups living at a similar time in southern Africa. Commenting on the findings, Matthew Pope, uh, Dr. Matthew Pope from the Institute of Archaeology at UCL says, this team claimed to have identified middens. This is shorthand for humanly created structures, piles, heaps, mounds, formed entirely of shell. This hmm. is important as they suggest a systematic and organized behavior from collection to processing to discard. Dr. Pope was not involved in the, in the study, and he added, in later periods across the world, Coastal sh shell hunter-gatherers seem to invest in these structures in monumental ways, even having burials with them. So to describe these accumulations as middens is a bold and loaded step. Certainly, they made a strong case that these are comparable to similar accumulations in Middle Stone Age of Africa. So there's like these piles of shells yeah. that look look intentional, look like they have hunted this this marine life and then gone. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make patterns with the remnants. I don't know if the more, more interesting thing is the fact that they had the seafood diet or that they were into the aesthetics of, of shells. Like, was there, was there a Neanderthal with, like, puka shell necklace who was into 311 before everybody else was? <laughs> Bleach tips. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Moana. They had shells. Sure. That's true, yeah. I wonder who the first person, first human. That's a documentary, was. right? Yeah, uh, that, that Pixar documentary, Moana. Yeah, that uh, drawn They discovered a lot of drawings and then they pieced it together with a narrative. That's how. That's how what Disney I. That's, does all that stuff. That's how I got it. That's what I took from that movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I guess, I guess that all makes sense. I mean, if you were to have asked me before this, do you think like old old man ate dolphins and whales and sharks? I would have said yes, but I'm glad to know that's confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess fi fishing is quite is a rel. I was about to say fishing is a relatively sophisticated thing, but then I just remembered that also bears do it. Oh no! <laughs> I, well, do you watch... still sophisticated though? Yeah. I mean, and uh, I, I this is a common reference for me uh, when I talk about anything in the world. But do you guys watch Survivor? I don't I do really. Survivor is the greatest, one of the best shows on TV. Can't recommend it enough. And it's a great, uh, the, the thing that makes Survivor so incredible is it's such a great study of, like, strategy and humans, like how we survive. And one thing that you see a lot on Survivor is fishing is way easier than catching an animal. Oh, interesting. So much easier. To catch an animal involves, one, a lot of danger. Yeah. Like, almost all animals bite and can charge you. Uh -huh. And two, you have to, like, catch it. You have to slaughter it. You just have a spear in the water, like, just like oh. a spear. You can yeah. just spear fish. I guess I've never tried it, so I assumed that it's harder than... From what I watch on Survivor, fishing appears way easier than... Now, they probably also tell the... As I say this, I'm like, they're probably telling the contestants not to slaughter animals. Yeah. Um, but they do slaughter chickens on the show. You do see that. They'll be giving chickens, and they, they break their necks. I guess I haven't watched it enough to even know. I, I, I know it's been 20 years the show's been going now, but, like, how does it even approach any level of, like, how, how are the stakes real when, obviously, no one's going to let anybody 
Oh, get into these guys. Really... Oh, but they get pretty badly hurt. I mean, it, it, the stakes are pretty high. Um, suppo- part of it is Jeff Probst and uh, it, it, whoever does it with him. I is but they they, they run a because sh- it's a more of a competition than anything else. Right. So as a result, because it's it's not a, it's a sport to me. Survivor is a sport of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it should be treated as such. I've always felt. Um, I think <laughs> it should be. Should have, yeah. Yes, I really do. I, it's so much strategy. There's so much strategy. There's so much gameplay. Like 100. percent And so with that comes this like sense of there has to be rules and the rules are followed. So in Survivor, basically, if a doctor uh, has to help you in any way, uh, like remove you from the island to do anything to you, you're out of the game. Okay. So as a result, nobody wants a doctor near them. Right. So they're pretty. They're pretty out there. Supposedly, people who do it. I mean, they come back and they're. They, 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 it fucks up your body pretty bad. It looks like. Yeah. These guys do not come back looking great. Well, they come back usually that. having lost fifty pounds or something, but not in a healthy way. In right. a horribly unhealthy way. They're yeah. super. Yeah. They're they're starved. They're dehydrated, um, and, I mean, oh, I mean, people. Multiple seasons, I've been like torn torn ACLs. I mean, these guys get hurt pretty bad. Okay, I got to start watching this show. I don't know why. Twenty years in, I've only seen like three episodes. But let me tell you something: you watch a full season of Survivor, you'll have the time of your life. <laughs> I got time right now, so yeah, dude. I'm telling you, best show on TV, and okay. a great science. Like I, 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 do you guys have mostly science? Do you have mostly? Because I do a podcast about sports and. I find half of my listeners are actually people who aren't super into sports because I talk about it in a very like easy to talk about way. Do you mm-hmm. find that people who listen to this are super into science, or do you feel like it's people who are like me who don't really know science but are curious? We have a blend. It's a complete blend, and we have listeners who found us through the comedy world, either you know from knowing one of us through comedy or one of our guests, and that's how they found the show. And then we have listeners who found us from the science world. Like we have listeners who are full like professors and, and researchers in their in their fields. And then we have listeners who just you know want a comedy podcast but want it to be about something that isn't just two guys chatting. Yeah, sure. And, and by the way, if you want, if we we could tie this all together neatly with a thing that's actually in the news and relates right. to sports and this well, podcast. Well, we should also, by the way, before we do, well, do you want to do that, or should we do that as a little bonus? Is there a bonus story? Well, I was just going to. I was just going to tell the story about Brooks. Oh, oh, oh we should definitely do that. Um, oh, I but, followed uh, this ridiculousness. Before we do, uh, Danny, what it, what is your podcast so you can make sure that our listeners can jump across to you as well? Oh, I would love that, guys. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I do a podcast called Everything But the Scores. Um, it's about all the stories around sports uh, normally. So before pre-corona, uh, I would take the stories from the sports world that week that you don't have to aren't on the field. It's more about like the people and the interesting things that happen. And I would talk about those. Um, since uh, sports have stopped, what I've been doing is every couple of days now I put out an episode and I tell a story from the sports world um, story. You might oh, not. Cool. Yeah. It's really fun. Like uh, we did uh, may uh, I did Jackie tone this week and we talked about may young, who I don't know if you guys have ever heard of, no. But so Jackie Tone's on Glow, and so uh, Mae Young started uh, was a female wrestler who started wrestling in 1939. She's been she's like one of the first female wrestlers. Had a very long female wrestling oh, career. I think I do know who she is. I remember seeing like some, a YouTube video 
Did she, uh, of like cameoing on like a WWE event? Yes. Within the last ten years, or even so, within the last five years. So then, what happened is exactly. So she has this career until she's like forty-five, fifty, retires, obviously, and then at seventy-seven years old, they her and uh, um, the fabulous Moolah, who's this other female con- uh, wrestler. They do this bit where they're like, we're going to honor you guys at 77. And then this guy who's a jerk is going to beat you up. And these women who are real wrestlers were like, well, then have them do it. Like, <laughs> we, we can take a bump. And so Mae Young gets absolutely, uh, Fabulous Moolah takes a guitar to the head. Fabulous <laughs> Moolah gets absolutely decked. And the crowd obviously reacts in horror. Because it's right. a 77-year-old woman that it's, just got absolutely... It's kind of the, it's the ultimate heel move. Like, there's nothing you could do worse as a heel than beating oh. up a granny. <laughs> and, so, and so WWE is like, do you want to have... Do you want to do this? So for two and a half years, she was a major plot point in WWE. She went through multiple tables at 77 years old, did it perfectly. She's a trained wrestler, and it's just like an unbelievable story. So I tell a story like that, and I tell other things, and I love doing it, and it's so much fun, and you'll get super into it. It's incredible. I just I just sent a link to a video of her wrestling the fabulous Moolah. If you look at the in the chat there, this is we'll the best thing the I've ever seen. As well. Yeah. Oh wait wait wait. Oh. Hang on. Let me send you something better. Okay. You want to see something? You you want to see how fucking insane Mae Young is? Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, anybody who, but, but yeah. And so that's what I do on the podcast. I talk about, I do this sort of stuff and I, uh, I get, that's what I do. I get real excited. And then, uh, and so we talk about it. So during this period of doing that, and the other thing I always tell people is I'm like, you don't have to have watched sports to, uh, to get my podcast. Uh, I always say like, uh, you don't have to do meth to get Breaking Bad. You don't have to like have <laughs> been super into sports to like, to under- appreciate a story right right, right. um if uh that's that everything but the scores it's called everything but the scores that's, uh, um and feel free to watch that clip i just sent you guys because oh, okay. right now oh my god that that uh pile driver or whatever that is wow wow yeah that's amazing <laughs> so we'll put we'll put that in the show notes as well <laughs> put it in there but yeah, yeah so that's the that, that's the sort of stuff we talk about. So it's a fun time. Please come over. Please listen. <laughs> so, yeah, she like I mean that that's a move <laughs> that's a I couldn't fall. do, and I'm I'm several decades younger than her. She's she yeah. lived until like ninety. That's amazing. And was walk, and was like totally, I mean she the thing is if you watch that she falls perfectly like she knows how to take a bump. It's, it's still you insane. Watch it, you she's think a, she's just been killed. I can't believe it was a safe yeah, yeah. drop <laughs> there. That's and crazy. backstory on that on that thing you're watching. She had the week before done one also through a table, and they were. And then she was like, "I want to do it again," because she didn't get hurt. She was like, "Let me do it one more time." So that was the second week in a row she'd gone through a table. <laughs> <laughs> um, so May, while we're uh, talking about ridiculous sporting feats, let's. Let's talk about our friend and original co-host of this show, Brooks Whelan. Sure. I'll, also, I'll link to this story. I mean, Danny, I'm sure you heard it. The, but, uh, oh, I, oh, I followed. Yeah. <laughs> you followed it live. So friend of the, friends of the show, Nick Turner and Nick Vaderup, both of them have been on the show discussing their podcast, Get Rich Nick, uh, in which they attempt to make money. And 
how exactly? I, I don't know how exactly this bet came about. Well, I just linked but... to the GQ. There's a GQ article about it, which I just linked to. And um, so, yeah, I guess on, um, I don't know, a few days ago, Brooks had a bet for $500 with Nick that he could finish. Yeah, that's $500. In, in less than four hours and 33 minutes, which was, uh, I think they Googled that and found that it was the average uh, race time for maybe entrance in the New York marathon or just average marathon yeah. time in general. But with, by the way, we should add with zero training. That's the important right. bit. Brooks, yeah. and, and, Brooks and, who would but, never train for a marathon said with zero training, I can run a marathon in under four minutes, four hours, 30. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I can just quote this article. So they asked, so the, the interviewer says, so you ran a marathon. How did it come up? And Brooks said, the longest I'd ever continuously run was 10 miles. I just lost my job at SNL and I was so stressed out. He just ran to relieve stress. Now he runs like three miles occasionally, maybe nine miles a week. Um, but they were drunk, and he said, I'll run a marathon. We bet $500, and we weren't sure if, if we were going to do it or it was just drunk drunk talk. Um, but then he thought, it's just, if this is the one thing I can do right now. I'm not touching anybody. It's all outside. I'll just track it on RunKeeper on my phone. So, yeah, he looked up the average time for someone to train for eight weeks to make it a legitimate bet, which was about four and a half hours. He said since he's 33, yeah. he'll make it 433. And that's also apparently how fast Oprah could run it. Um, so he wanted to beat Oprah, which ironically is, that was my only goal. I ran a marathon once in 2007, and all I wanted to do was make sure I wasn't slower than Oprah. I don't know how she's become <laughs> everyone's. Did, I didn't know you did a marathon then. Uh, yeah, and I trained for it, though. I didn't do it drunk and on no training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's also worth pointing out, there wasn't a marathon going on. No, 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 this no, was, no. Yeah. Brooks didn't enter a marathon. He ran a marathon's worth of distance, mostly around Los Feliz, in loops. <laughs> Just... I mean, it's insane. Yeah. So he, let's see, he says, um, so he thought it'd be funny if he just trained for the marathon by doing whatever the last two days of marathon program is. So it said to rest on both days. So I was like, got that. The goal was to not drink Friday and then go jogging. But then I was on a walk with my girlfriend and our favorite wine store lou was doing takeout wine i was like you know what let's get some bottles of wine for later we ended up drinking till like 1 30 or 2 friday night um because we had this wine that we dug and i'm an idiot uh one thing i will say my girlfriend was pretty adamant that it's just really irresponsible if you have to go to a hospital doing this thing and i said 100 percent agreed if i feel in any way shape or form like i'm going to like tear an acl i'll stop so he just ran yeah he had no path he just said he's gonna jog until he hits 26.2 miles and he did that, and he made it in 4.16, which is pretty damn – I mean, I think it's like a 9.47 pace for 26 miles, which is very not bad. Um, and he said he wasn't even – like he said it hurt his joints more than anything, but it, just, it hurt his hips and knees. In the last six miles, he was like, this sucks. And then I got to the point where I could have walked in the last six and still got my $500, but then I was like, I got to beat Oprah. So I did hurry a little bit. That is I, – I can't get over it. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then people were tracking it online because I guess this run tracker was a thing you could look at. So in this world where there's no sports, there was this Twitter following who were like placing bets on whether he was going to make it or not. I I, I was it. following it intensely because I, I couldn't believe it was possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd think like you do get to some injuries you can't even walk through, you know, if you if you go too he hard. Also he accidentally, I'm looking at his Twitter as well, he also accidentally got an elevation gain of over a mile because he oh. wasn't picking smart areas to run. Right. That's going to make it a lot worse. Yeah, I didn't realize yeah. how bad Heartbreak Hill in, in the Boston Marathon, which is the famous uphill, I think is only like 
100 to 200 foot elevation gain or something and brooks uh, gained a mile over the course did, of his math he oh. did tweet the next day uh pretty sure someone snuck into my house while i was sleeping last night and wailed on my legs with an aluminum bat <laughs> i mean i'm sure the, it, the next day had to be awful oh I, he must be in so much pain i i can't <laughs> but also with that said i cannot fathom he did it like it is uh, my understanding of training for a marathon is it is so hard and so difficult and he did it with <laughs> no train no, tra- I mean, but part of the reason you train is so that the next day you don't go through what he went through, which is probably so bad that it's not worth doing. <laughs> and also, he's an athlete. He's a former wrestler. Like, he's obviously in better shape than the average person in the world. I'm not yeah, saying but, it wasn't But everybody hard. who runs a marathon is in good shape. Right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> he beat Oprah with no training. Yeah, I, it's it, it's crazy. I'm incredibly impressed. <laughs> yes, I am. T- I mean, the commitment to the bit, if nothing else, I, I don't know what his main motiva- motivation was, if it was commitment to a bit, because if it's that, I love it. Or whatever it is, I love it. It's 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 amazing. Yeah. Or if it's just um, the 500 bucks, because, you know, money's tight now. There's no gigs right now, so. Oh, sure. We're all, we're all your, hunting money your, where we can. What's your number to run a marathon tomorrow, Danny? Your dollar amount. I would need a well. One, I'd have to somehow knock my my girlfriend would have to be asleep because she would not allow it. But assuming <laughs> assuming that we somehow got her on board, I think I'd have to do a thousand. I, I you'd have to really pay. It, it, I mean, it, you 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 only get two knees. Yeah. And with no training, you're going to really hurt your knees. I think I would need a couple thousand, a couple th- maybe five thousand. I could do I it know. for a thousand. I would do it for a th- I The other thing is, I don't know if I could do it though. With that said, like I would. I don't either. Attempt yeah. it for a thousand, but I I could not guarantee I would make it. Yeah, my yeah, question would was... be what time I would beat. My question would be would I be able to even physically walk twenty six miles before it got dark? Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, no way I do it if it's a bet where I would lose the money. But even if it's just like I'll pay you if you do it, I would still need way more than five hundred bucks. It's crazy. Like yeah. I went for a one mile walk yesterday and. My legs were a bit tired today. Like, I was like, oh, yeah. really? I, f- I felt it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what are you guys doing to stay sane in that regard? I know we got to wrap it up, but um, as far as I activity. was running, I was running every morning, but that's been pulled because we don't want to go outside that for that amount of time for the next couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it, it apparently hangs in the air. Um, we're learning new yeah. things every day. Um, so I was running that's been taken from me. Uh, but I've been, I've been working out a lot. I've been lifting every day and I've been doing yoga. I mean, we've nothing else to do. So that's sort of been my, my thing. Yeah. That's, that's, I sort of feel like we have to, you have to have something you come out of this being better at, you know, or else it's, uh, sure. less than nothing. I don't know. No, I hear you. So I, I've been doing that, but with that said, uh, but yeah, I, I, we stopped running cause it's, uh, it's just too risky and you know. This, uh, this, uh, it's just it's, a, it's just a rough period. I know. Every day we get new information and we don't know what to. Uh, yeah, everyone should stay home for the time being and just the next. Why, why doing, not? Yes. Keep doing your, your Zoom yoga classes, but remember yeah, to yeah. keep them passworded off to avoid the racists. Sure. <laughs> are there racist yoga class hecklers now? I'll tell I'm you, sure beach, Beachbody Beachbody dot com is a wonder, and I am in no way endorsed by this company. This is coming from the heart. Beachbody dot com has a lot of phenomenal stuff, and I really recommend it. Classes. They got but insanity. Buddy, they got P and A X. 
Beach Body. A B O D Y. Okay. okay. Yeah, they got they got B, they got P ninety X. They got Insanity, and they got all that stuff, and it's uh, just very doable. Oh, okay, cool. cool. Uh, Danny, apart from um, everything but the scores, where can our listeners find you and find things you've done? Oh, social media is a great place. Um, uh, at Danny Jollis on Instagram and Twitter, I always say this, our industry is broken. You cannot imagine how much it helps a comic to follow them on social <laughs> media. Uh, it really, it seems like something small when you're like, uh, you know, when you're, you're out of the industry, you're like, you're like, oh, I follow you and I'll follow you. But it's like, oh, it means everything to us is literally how they judge our worth at times. Um, and so if you follow me, that's very nice and helpful. Uh, crazy ex-girlfriend on Netflix is a wonderful show. Uh, it really is. There's a movie. Oh, thanks guys. I was also in a, in a, I did a movie called blowing up right now that came out, uh, like a month or two ago, but it is about a couple dealing with the end of the world and trapped in a house together. Um, and uh, it's like the most timely or the worst timing. It's literally the most timely thing ever. Uh, so I'd also recommend that. I think it, it iTunes just made it ninety nine cents to rent. Uh, cool. And oh, so, uh, and if you want to see a lot of Danny acting and a lot of Danny overacting, might I recommend <laughs> <laughs> blowing up right now? Uh, and that's it. And then uh, you know everybody just cool. stay just stay safe. And then find us on Zoom. Oh, you could if you want to see something a little bit more prepared as well. I really enjoyed your set on Colbert. Oh, late thank night you. Set. So there's Danny doing stand-up with a real audience in the with, same room as him. It was who so were able exciting. to react in real time to his words. It it was <laughs> crazy. Remember those days? <laughs> Seems like a Remember lifetime ago. Remember when people could sit together and be within breathing range of each other? Remember when <laughs> that didn't seem insane? Yeah. It's um, like, ugh, and feels so far away. But I, I think uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks we'll be in a in a... In a in a month, we'll be in such a better place. But these next couple of weeks, I feel like gonna... we will, as long as people are doing it right. Yeah. Um, yeah. As as always, you can find us at probablyscience.com, at probablyscience, individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. Any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you'd like us to cover, you can go to email uh, probablyscience at gmail.com. Uh, probablyscience.com is where we also keep all the show notes and also our donation buttons. And just spread the word. Tell people about the show. Uh, I know a lot of you are doing that. We really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks again so much for joining us, Danny. Oh, guys, thank you so much for having me. An absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thanks, Danny.